You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Russell Banks is the author of novels including Cloud Splitter, Rule of the Bone, The Sweet Hereafter, and Affliction. His newest book is Lost Memory of Skin. Thank you for joining me, Russell. Well, thank you for having me. Russell, this is a really remarkable book, and I have to admit that I was a little bit leery of reading it because the subject matter is somewhat strikes, you know, when you hear about it, from a distance, it strikes one as distasteful. Yet once you, once I opened the book and started reading the prose and the immersion in the character is so wonderfully well wrought that it's a very compelling reading experience. Well, thank you. Actually, I, I was a little apprehensive about writing it in the first place, too, because I knew I was going to be dealing with a subject that is in many ways almost a taboo subject. Um, we're talking about convicted sex offenders, and I'm writing about a 22-year-old kid who's uh, wearing an ankle bracelet and living in a colony of convicted, of homeless convicted sex offenders in some, a place very much like Miami, Florida. Uh, this so is... On that, on that recommendation, I think, you know, I was a little nervous to begin with. Uh, I don't blame you. Now, you were inspired by a real colony of, of uh, sex offenders who live under an overpass in, uh, in Miami, is it? That's right. No, I, I spend part of the year in Miami, Miami Beach, actually, and, and, and uh, I can look out from my terrace and see this causeway. And um, about four years ago, um, a couple of news articles appeared in the Miami Herald, pointing out their existence, an existence that uh, most people in, in the city and, and elsewhere um, were unaware, was unaware of. It, it was just simply a, um, a colony of, of men who uh, had been convicted um, of sex offenses ranging from, you know, serial rapists to, uh, you know, a, a boy of 20 or so who had had sex with his high school girlfriend who was under 18. Um, to someone who had exposed himself while drunk. I mean, it was a, a mixed, you know, a bag that everybody was thrown into, and then the bag was dropped off um, uh, under this causeway because uh, of regulations which prohibited convicted sex offenders from living anywhere within 2,500 feet of where children gather. So the irony of that, I mean, the, the unintended consequences of good intentions both puzzled me and... Um, it mystified me in some ways, and also um, drew me uh, into you know thoughts and and, and questions that uh, I probably never would have had otherwise. You know, one of the things I really like in this book, and I think this is a feature of some of your other books, is you do a fabulous job of giving us a portrait of an adult child uh, so that we see somebody who's an adult and who has a parent who's still alive but we see them struggling to survive in the world as a child in a sense that still um, not having come to term fully terms uh, to terms with their adulthood that's right I mean he, he's called the kid uh, with good reason um, he's never really given a name other than that of the kid uh, I mean I also wanted to introduce a kind of fable-like quality to the story. Uh, most of the characters, in fact, have uh, names like that, the professor, uh, the writer, the wife, the shyster, etc. Um, and and he, this kid is, he is a, 
a childlike man. Um, he's uh, he's a, in a way a feral child who's who raised himself, not unlike an awful lot of, of um, young adults uh, across the country. Um, you know, latchkey kids we used to call them, uh, single parent uh, kids whose parents, uh, whose mother usually was a mother. Um, is at work all day and exhausted at night, and and um, so from childhood on, from infancy on, he's essentially raised himself, and in the process uh, found himself uh, gradually, you know, alienated from others, and um, also addicted to the internet and addicted to pornography, and uh, without any 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 one to love him, and without anyone for him to love, you know. The prose in this book is so beautifully wrought and so compelling. That's really what I think uh, drives us, because this is really quite a page-turner in terms of me wanting to—as I read this, I was immersed in this, in the perceptions of the kid, and I think you do a great job of putting us in the mind of this of this young man, and also in terms of, as I say— uh, finding a language that's evocative, that gives us a, a real feel for what his situation is like, who he is, how he got to be that way, but is still really readable and enjoyable. Well, I'm glad to know that, and because I love this kid. I, I, you know, you can't expect a reader to have compassion and sympathy for a character unless you, the writer, have that same sympathy and compassion to begin with. And I like this kid because he's basically honest, and um, he wants to be a good person, and he's striving to be a good person, even though the world has told him he's a bad person. Um, and um, he's also one of the things that I like about him is, um, you know, and I enjoyed spending three years of my life with him and writing the book, is that he's he's funny. He has a kind of, of wry point of view. It's, it's self-saving in a way. It's, it's a little defensive, but, um, but he's, he says and thinks unexpected and witty without intending to be witty things. And so you, 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 don't, you enjoy his company, I think. I enjoy his company, and I, and I hope the readers enjoy his company as well. You know, I think what you said is really, really important because here's a character that might be very easily otherwise unlikable or or unliked by the reader and thus render the book somewhat unreadable. But I think as readers, we do detect that the author likes him, and that helps us sympathize with him as well. And But not everybody in the book is as sympathetic as he is. Tell us a little bit about The Professor and creating this kind of fable-like uh, quality because, I, you know, I hadn't— I hadn't really twigged to that, but that really makes sense. This is, in many ways, like a, a modern kind of fairy tale. Well, that's 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 right. I hoped for that because I, I didn't want it to be just another novel of social realism about, you know, some uh, aspect of uh, an underclass or an invisible, marginalized group of human beings. Um, and, uh, but I did want to use the conventions of realism and kind of push them out to the extreme edge if I could. And the professor appears in the story for various reasons. Uh, one is that uh, I wanted to get another angle on the kid's plight and the world that the kid lives in. And the professor is, in on the surface of things, a more um, conventional person. He's an academic, he's a sociologist, and uh, his first appearance in the story is really um, as a someone who's studying the, um, the connection between homelessness and, and convicted sex offenders. Uh, that's his little area of expertise. But be- 
before long, he, he, he ends up in a relationship with a kid that's custodial and somewhat protective. And then even further down the line, he begins to look a little more ominous than that, and, and his relationship starts to see, feel a little more threatening. As you feel protective toward the kid, you start to feel a little bit suspicious of the professor. It doesn't help, of course, uh, that he's morbidly obese. The man is, is, is an enormous man um, who uh, we find out rather quickly, um, just as the kid is addicted to pornography and to the Internet, the professor is addicted to food and to gluttony, and um, and he you know, he has basically a, an eating disorder of mammoth proportions, um, and and a lot of secrets of his own, which uh, we begin one by one to uh, to find out about. You know, as I as I was working on the story, about a third of the way into it, I said, you know, I've read something like this somewhere in the back of my brain. There's a story I remember, and um, and I, where there's a, a young boy man who's innocent but not quite as innocent as he seems um, and um, and then there's an older man who is protective but maybe not quite as protective as he seems um, who has his own agenda and and then I, I remembered um, Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island and I went back and read it and I saw oh yeah right that was Jim Hawkins and Long John Silver as it turns out, it's actually a marvelous book, and, but it's, it's a book full of archetypes, and it's structured in a, in a beautifully, almost mythical way, um, a search for treasure and so forth. And, and elements of that started creeping into, into this story, and I think they, too, kind of give it another dimension um, than the, you know, the, 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 the down-and-dirty social realism that you might expect for this kind of a story. You know, um, it, it strikes me, too, that uh, one of the things I think you do very well in this book is to uh, create, you know, a really compelling plot. So talk about um, working with elements of plot in the, and integrating the elements of character because the plot comes from these, these characters that you've created. Right. And the characters are, are, as you say, kind of archetypes and, and mythic types moving through a landscape that seems mythic too. And it, yet it seems very gritty and realistic. Well, I, I, yeah, I hope so. I, I, I was aspiring to find a place in that, you know, um, range of, of possibilities that realism embraces. I mean, uh, not, you know, I didn't want to go out to writing uh, as far as what we, we, we call, you know, kind of hyper-realistic fiction, but I also didn't want to lock it down and, and write something that Balzac might have written. Um, Instead, I wanted to find a zone where, where the slightly surreal aspects of, of the world could, could enter in, partially because a lot of the, the central themes of the book have to do grow out of the, um, the breakdown of, uh, or the dissolution, I should say, um, of uh, that sharp line between fantasy and reality that, um, that has come to exist now, especially where so much of our life is lived in a and our perceptions depend upon a digitalized version of reality. And, um, and, and that's a central theme in this. And, and it does drive some of the plot. It drives certainly uh, some of the imagery and, and some of the plight uh, of the characters. I might say that you know, most plot really arises out of conflict and contradiction. And, and, uh, and these characters are full of conflicts and contradictions. So... Once you enter the character, as uh, speaking as a writer, um, and you find there those uh, those contradictions and those conflicts, 
Um, the plot, in a funny way, is the easy part. Uh, it just rises up out of it because you've got to somehow find a way to resolve those questions and those conflicts. And, and uh, over the course of three or four hundred pages, and, and uh, so I, I don't find plotting all that hard uh, once I have the characters in place. I've been speaking with Russell Banks. His new novel is Lost Memory of Skin. Thank you for joining me, Russell. Well, thank you for having me on. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.